Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. Hey everybody, a uh, little change of pace here. My name is Dave Rollins. I'm the head swimming and diving coach at Florida Gulf Coast University. Uh, in honor of Brett Hawk's uh, 75th podcast, we are going to turn the tables on him a little bit and he's going to be a special guest today. I want to be asking him some questions, uh, getting his thoughts on a few things. Uh, he's done a great job interviewing a bunch of phenomenal athletes that have, have been high level competitors and coaches over the years. So Seeing as though he was a high-level competitor and coach, I think it's our turn to, to hear what he's got to say. So without further ado, let's welcome your favorite host, but we're going to turn it around on him, Mr. Brett Hawk. All right, man. <laughs> How you doing? Just slid in there. Doing See well. That? It's just sliding on in. Looking good. <laughs> What's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm great, man. Uh, pretty, pretty special edition here, 75th uh, podcast. And I, I was born in 1975 and, and you had been hitting me up with some questions lately of like, hey, man, when are we going to hear from you more? When are, when are you going to do a podcast? And I was like, well, if you're, if you're willing to ask me questions, let's do it. So this is a Absolutely. little celebration podcast right here. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be a good time for sure. I got a, got a bunch of questions. Uh, I've been listening to, to the podcast as they've been, they've been coming out. I haven't been able to hit every single one, so I've been a completely 100% loyal listener, but I've been, I've been listening to quite a few and watching quite a few, and they've been phenomenal. So this is a special treat for, for me, for sure. Um, well, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. All right. Uh, well, we know that you're doing the podcast, but what other things are you doing uh, right now since you've been out of coaching? Well, listen, I, uh, I, I quit my job in 2018 at Auburn University as the head coach. And um, it just kind of took a few months to just uh, take a deep breath. And so I traveled the world with Bruno Frattis, who I was coaching at the time one of the fastest sprinters in the world. And we just kind of went and, and did kind of a European tour. You know, he, he, uh, he went on this racing um, spurt where he, he was uh, going 21 seconds every time he'd jump in the pool. And so I just traveled the world with him for about four months. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And then after that, I was like, okay, it's time that you know, start thinking about getting a real job again. And, and that's when David Arlock, the CEO and owner of Fitter and Faster Swim, tours and, and clinics um he hit me up and said hey would you want to come work for me and so since i think about september 2018 i've been working at fitter and faster full-time and helping out um, running clinics all around the country and and that's what i still do to this day i still i still work full-time and, and love it and it's very rewarding very challenging this day and age um with with all the COVID stuff and but we've survived and um offering clinics and getting kids in the pool uh, six feet apart, obviously, but um, really enjoying that aspect of, of giving back to swimming. And, and it's a different look for me. You know, I've, I was in, um, you know, professional swimming or, or um, high level swimming for all of my life, uh, basically from the moment I made the Australian team um, at the age of 21, I went, I went to college in the U S and then just from, from 21 all the way up to, I think I stopped working at Auburn when I was 42. So, you know, from 21 to 42, I was in high performance swimming. Um, so it's nice to give back and go back to kind of where it all started for me in, you know, coaching or, or helping work with young kids from, from the get go, from, from the moment they really dream of being a swimmer or a get, get into swimming and, and teaching them proper technique. And I'm really loving that aspect of it. Oh, that's great. So obviously the, the clinics need to look a little different than they probably traditionally have uh, before, you know, all this kind of went down. So what are, what are some things you guys are doing differently? So you're still able to, to run the event for everybody. I mean, there's a lot of things where we're really keeping in mind the health and safety of the participants and, you know, the fact that they go home once they finish with the clinic and they go back to, you know, family and friends and grandparents and all those sorts of people. So we certainly don't want to put them in a situation where they can get, um, you know, a, 
a, a situation where they get the the COVID and and take it back to family. So you know we are we're doing many different things. You know a lot of our clinics are run with masks on when we do our introductions. We're doing them over Zoom. Actually, we get the clinicians together and we'll do a Zoom introduction. We'll send that out to participants so we don't have to bring people together at the clinic. Once they sign in at the clinic, we assign them a lane. They go straight there. Um, usually they'll, they'll have one swimmer at one end of the pool, another swimmer at the other end, or we'll run them in heats where they're six feet apart. And so it's really just a situation where we have to be mindful of, you know, how the participants are, are learning and, and what they're taking away from the clinic. And um, so far it's been a huge success and, and people are really loving the fact that we're doing these clinics again. And, um, you know, I'm enjoying being able to get clinicians on the road and get them some money again. And it's just, it's just good for everybody, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and, and as a coach, just getting your athletes back in the water and, and, you know, swimmers, as much as they enjoy doing land work, you know, the moment they can get back in the water and, and start putting some of those things into practice, you know, I know they definitely benefit and enjoy it. So that's, yeah. that's great. You guys are still able to do those. Yeah. Um, all right. So you, were a high level athlete yourself and you came up in a time where there was some amazing performances happening. You know, what was that like being a part of it and kind of living in those moments? Yeah. I told someone this yesterday, you know, I finished six at the Olympics, which is a phenomenal performance. And I was the worst swimmer on the team at the time, you know, so it was like everybody was winning medals, um, breaking world records. All my best friends were world record holders, Olympic champions that they were just my teammates. So it's like, um, yeah, you kind of had this really bad self-image of yourself if you didn't if you didn't win a medal at the Olympics. So it was just it was just one of those times where um, we were just really lucky. You know, swimmers that I've had on my podcast just recently: Susie O'Neill, you know, Grant Hackett, Ian Thorpe, you know, Michael Klim. These types of athletes um, just just were huge influences on me. Um, and, and I, and I guess in a way they made me the coach I am today because what I got to do was sit back and observe, you know, I traveled the world with some of the greatest athletes in history and, and from the moment we made the team to the moment we, we swam and, and traveled home, you know, we were together all the time. So a lot of what I learned through from coaching was just through observation, just watching my teammates and watching how they did things. And then part of me being reasonably decent at podcasting now was just me back then asking questions like how do you do things why do you do those things and and so through observation and through asking questions um i guess i learned how to be a decent coach and a decent podcaster um you know but by being around some of the most amazing athletes in history well that's i mean that's incredible so you're you're sitting there i mean you're six you're the, essentially one of if not the fastest human being in the world and you're yeah. surrounded by the other fastest human beings in the entire world and their coaches and so you guys are at training camps and you're mm -hmm. at meets and you're just sitting there listening to these these different things and i can only you know i'm i'm 30 whatever and i can only imagine sitting in on those like those meetings like how like listening to ian thorpe's coach walking through a practice and how can i relate that to you know, my athletes, obviously we're not going to do the same sets, but you know, just those conversations and their mindset and, and everything, that's, 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 it's invaluable information right there for sure. Yeah. And it was, you're right. And, and for a part of my time at Auburn, um, I was lucky to be surrounded by athletes like that, you know, who were very high level. And then, um, and then we went through a period of time where, where we didn't have, um, some of those athletes that were Olympic champions and world champions in the program. And your expectation is, is it's hard to make adjustments in your head when you don't have that level of athlete in your program. I'm sure you experience a little bit of this. Now you have varying levels of, of athlete within, within any program, right? You have ones that just want to swim in college and then you have ones that want to be Olympic champion. And so there's this huge variation of um, talent and also, um, willingness to to push and and that's kind of what I experienced and so as a coach you have to adjust to that as well it's like how do you hold somebody to a particular standard and then hold somebody else to another standard based on their own um, want you know this athlete wants to be the greatest athlete in the world this athlete just wants to get a degree in college 
You know, so yeah. it's like it was very difficult to balance the two and you had to figure out where everybody fit. And then you had to figure out how to get the best out of everybody based on those factors, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so we were talking a little bit about the NCAA system, but what's initially brought you over to the States to, to compete in the NCAA system? Yeah, the biggest thing is I've said this many times. Um, and Susie O'Neill talked about this. The reason why she thinks she was very successful is because she just didn't quit. And that's kind of what happened to me in my career. At the 1996 Olympic trials, I went to the Olympic trials and I, I, I qualified for the team within the team standards. I finished six in the 100 freestyle. A couple of days later, the head coach said to me, if you finish first or second in the 50, then we're going to take you to the Atlanta Olympics. And this is me at a, as, as a 20-year-old kid. I'm like, okay, great this is it. I'm, I'm going to the team. I've qualified. I, I, f I swim the 50 freestyle and I finished third by three one hundredths of a second. And then I'm sitting in the stands waiting for the announcement of the team. And as they're calling out names, they're doing it alphabetically and they just jump straight over my, my name alphabetically. And I'm like, I, I just, I didn't get picked on the Olympic team. Like what? Like I qualified, right. but, um, but I didn't do everything necessary to put myself in a situation where they could not leave me off the team. You know, that, I put myself in a situation where they had choice and they chose not to take me. And that was a very difficult point of my life. And so at that point, I was like, I've, I've got to find something different. And so I, I, I applied to um, university in America. I applied to Auburn University. I met David Marsh. Um, and that, that was kind of a funny sequence how, how it happened. But I, I, just, I just looked at Auburn. That was the only school I looked at. And David Marsh offered me a small scholarship. I said, I'm going to take it. And so at that point in time, I just kind of um, backed myself. Um, I told my parents that David had offered me a full scholarship. And, um, and so that was, that was high risk because my parents didn't have a lot of money. And so when they started getting the bills after the first few weeks of me being in America, my dad said, well, what's happening? And so I had to kind of come clean and say, like, I didn't really get a full scholarship, but I'm going to earn a full scholarship. Just give me time. And my dad's like, no, we don't have the money. You got you to come home. So I, I went back to David Marsh and I said, listen, how can I get a full scholarship? And he said, if you win NCAAs this year, I'll, I'll put you on a full scholarship. And that was, I had about a three-month window to, to figure it out. And as the bills added up and as my dad kept telling me to come home, I kept telling myself, you got to win. You got to be the best. You got to figure it out. And, um, and three months later, I ended up winning NCAAs in the 53. Um, we won uh, a bunch of relays. We broke NCAA records. And then the team actually won the team title for the first time in Auburn's history in 1997. And uh, I went straight to David. I said, I've got to get that full scholarship. I'm going home. And, and he said, okay, well, we'll figure it out. So um, that, was a, that was a lifesaver. But, you know, again, I just backed myself at that point in time. And I think you've got to do that as an athlete. You've got to say, um, if I if I want something bad enough, I'm going to figure out how to get it done. And and in those two instances, when I went to America, and then I put the effort in to get the scholarship I needed, it was really just about trusting myself and backing myself and and not compromising. Absolutely. So, uh, as an international athlete, what are some major? That's not necessarily major. But what are some differences you notice from various international systems to the NCAA system? Two things jumped out at me immediately when I, when I came to America. First of all, the team aspect. We, we didn't have team. We had, we had individual swimmers who swam under the same cap, but we didn't, we didn't even wear the same cap in practice. We would all wear different caps in Australia. We would all wear different swimsuits in Australia. So you just look like an individual turning up to a practice whenever, when all these other individuals were turning up. When I came to America, it looked like a team was walking into the building. You had the same cap on, you had the same swimsuit, you had the same sweats. Everybody looked the same. I felt like I was almost had joined the military in some respect because it was so um, team oriented. There was no real individual, although you could be an individual within the team, it was all about the team. That really jumped out at me immediately. Um, so that, that was one thing. And then the next thing was um, just the, the, the way that the team interacted with each other. When we were in Australia and we would do a swim set, it was silence. You were just kind of out there doing your own thing. When I got to America, I had people 
holding me accountable all of a sudden for each repetition that I was doing. And in a way it was confronting. It was like, can you give me a second here? Like back off me a little bit. Like I'm trying to breathe and they wouldn't let me breathe. They'd be like, go harder, go faster, go stronger, push, push, push. And these are my teammates. These aren't coaches. I'm like, wow, I'm being held accountable all of a sudden. So the, the fact that I felt part of a team and the fact that I was being held accountable to be the best I could be, they were the two biggest things that really jumped out at me. Um, and then I was being held accountable to, to go to school as well. And that was, that was a whole nother thing as well. So just every aspect of my life, all of a sudden there was accountability and, and performance was um, based around that accountability. It's like, we're going to hold you accountable so that you can perform. And so it became very performance based and, um, and it was extremely competitive. Um, I was, I was one of the best swimmers in the country in Australia. When I got to Auburn, I was probably the sixth or seventh fastest swimmer on the team. You know, I had Bill Pilsick who had just won a world championship um, on, on, on part of the team. And, and you know, I had some incredible athletes. Um, John Hargis had just swum at the 96 Olympics and got a, a gold medal. Scott Tucker was on the 96 Olympic team and, and got a gold medal as part of relays. So these guys were my teammates. So I wasn't by any means one of the fastest on my own team once I got to America. So just being held to a standard was just um, something I'd never experienced before. Well, and it, I mean, kind of going off of that, I mean, you talk about being held to a standard and, and you weren't necessarily the fastest when you got there, but being held to the standard and knowing what you were trying to achieve. And then you end up being an NCAA champion a few months later. Yeah. You know, how, like, do you feel like those practices with those high level athletes holding you accountable is what helped push you to that point? Oh, for sure. hundred percent. There's a very specific workout immediately. Once I got there, we went to Christmas training. So I actually got there Christmas day. Um, two days later, we jump in a van and we, we head down to Florida um, and, and we did our Christmas training down there. And I remember a, a very specific set where it was kind of my coming out party where I, where they were like, Oh wow, this guy's, this guy's for real. So David had us in the diving well, the whole team at the end of practice. And he said, okay, we're going to do, we're just going to do some elimination races. So you'd start off with all the guys, you know, and there'd be, there'd be 20 guys in the diving well, you'd swim. And then as you would swim, you'd eliminate people based on if they finish last so you know we're going through eliminating eliminating I'm 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 the group's getting smaller and smaller and as the group's getting smaller the guys that are that are out and and the girls that are out they're they're screaming for you and they're they're picking their favorites you know they're like hey I want you to win or you know they're they're really getting after people and I noticed you know not many people were cheering for me at that point in time but as we would go down and I'd start to eliminate people I'd start to get like, I wanted to hear people cheering my name. You know, I'm like, I want them on my side. So like, so I started to get a little bit in, in the guy's face and I'm just a, a freshman at this stage. Like I'm just the new kid on the block and I'm talking to some of the fresh, uh, to some of the seniors and I'm getting in their face. And, um, and, and so long story short, I end up, I end up coming down to the last two and uh, I can't remember exactly who it was against, but I'm going to say maybe Nick Shackle because I, I was, you know, he, he was the man and um, loved beating him. But, um, but it was very rare, but someone like that, you know, so I came down to the last, last race and um, I just remember getting in this guy's face and like the whole team was like, whoa, whoa. And then I win the thing and I'm, I'm prancing around. And um, so for me, it was like, I love the competition. Like you put me in a competitive situation, you're going to bring the best out in me. And, um, and that's what David did constantly. David Marsh would just put me in situations where I would, I would, I would be put up next to my teammates and they'd be like, all right, figure out a way to, to win. And, and, uh, I just love that about Auburn and, uh, and that's, that's what it did ultimately. So then, you know, fast forward a few months from then and we're at the NCAA championships I remember qualifying for the 50 freestyle second behind Neil Walker and we, we line up for the final and I just look over and my, my teammates are going crazy. Like they're going mental. And I'm, and I was just drawing so much energy from that. I just felt like a regular swimmer. But when I looked across the pool, I felt like Superman. I felt like I could take on anybody. And I, and then I just remember looking across at Neil Walker and like, you don't have a chance, buddy. Cause I, I felt 
indestructible. I felt unbeatable. And it was all because of the energy that was my teammates were giving me. If you put me up there by myself, I, I, I don't feel that way. And I don't think that way. If you put me in a situation where my teammates are like screaming and yelling and carrying on, and I'm like, I could take on anybody at that point in time. So that's what I really loved. I just thrived in that environment. Oh, that's great. And I think that's, I mean, that's true you know, across NCAA environment. I mean, you look at like a conference, a dual meet, a conference championship, you go to the NCAA championships. And I mean, I, I'll describe it to some of our athletes that have, that hadn't been there before. Um, and you know, you're sitting on, on the pool deck, getting ready to watch and back. I mean, back then it was the very first event in finals was the 200 freestyle relay. And there's at a men's NCAA championships with the 200 freestyle relay being the first event, I think the roof is going to blow off this place. There's so much testosterone, so much yelling, so much chest pounding. I mean, I swear I saw more hand marks on chests than I've seen anywhere else in my life. And then as soon as they fire, I mean, it is just absolutely nuts. And I think those, there there were times when when you were coaching, guys are going, 18, 17 seconds on a relay. And I don't think that happens if you don't have that environment around them. Obviously they're, they're phenomenal athletes, but when you put them in that environment, it helps raise everybody to a whole nother level. Yeah. To me, it was like, you know, you know, when you get out of a hard workout and you're hungry and you just can't wait for food and then you start eating and the food just tastes amazing and just like eating and eating and eating in a way, that's kind of what it felt like to me at NCAAs. I was just starving and then I'd see my teammates and to me, it was just fuel. Like they would just fill me up and I would just feel so energized and so indestructible in that situation. It was almost like everything else in the room just disappeared and all I could see was my teammates and all I could feel was the energy. And then transferring that into the pool was really simple for me. It was just like dive in and I didn't even have to think at that stage. Like everything was just flowing and everything came really natural. I remember my freshman year when we, we broke the NCA record in the, in the 200 medley relay, we were, I dove in third. And again, it was just a situation where I was getting the energy from my team and uh, I, I was on the freestyle leg and I remember I split 18-6. It was the fastest split in history at that point in time. And people were just on the pool deck like they'd never seen anything swim that fast across the pool. It was like, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. And I, I couldn't even compre- comprehend how I did it. I just remember the feeling of like floating on the water. And it was just like all I could think about were my teammates and wanting to win for them. And um and then you look back and you're like, I don't even know how I did that. That was incredible. So like, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a great period of my life. I learned so much and I, and even, you know, I, I even struggled leaving that situation because then I went home to try and make the Australian team. And I went back to feeling like I was alone again. And that was a very difficult period of time. And I know that a lot of, um, top level co- collegiate athletes struggle with that transitional period between college and professional swimming. Cause you do feel like that. It's almost like you feel like you, you've got this separation from, from your team, from your family. And all of a sudden you're just out there alone and trying to figure it out. It's a, it's a really difficult thing to navigate. And so let's transition a little bit. How did you go from being you know, a top level athletes and get into coaching? You know, how did, how did you end up making that transition? Again, it was just, um, it was just one of those things, uh, right place at the right time. I, I, I didn't finish my degree when I went back to qualify for the Australian team in, in 2000, it was in 2000, but I, I left school in 1999. I'd only done two and a half seasons, two and a half seasons. Yeah. Which was basically three, three years, but I was there two and a half years and I just said to David, I've got to go back to make this Olympic team. Like I have to, it's, it's in my hometown in Sydney, Australia. Um, I've got to make this team. I've got to rectify the 96 failure. Um, so I decided to leave college and go back, but, um, and I, and I did all that. I was very successful in that, but I I'd left my degree on the table and that was something that just bothered me. You know, I was like, man, I didn't finish my degree. And, uh, and I was really bothered by that. And, and so in 2006, when I decided to retire from swimming, um, I just called David Marsh back up and I said, hey, is there any way that I could come back and finish my degree? And he said, yeah, there's a program where um, the school will actually pay for it. They'll, they'll pay for you to finish. And I was like, great. Um, so he said, come back. So I, I was really just back at Auburn f- 
finishing my degree. That's all I was doing. I wasn't thinking about coaching. Uh, and then one of the, the great assistants uh, for David Marsh, Ralph Crocker, ended up um, getting cancer. And, and during that summer period that I just got back, um, Ralph had to step aside to, to deal with his cancer and treat it. And David just said, look, I need some help. Can you, can you just help me out? So I said, all right, I'll, I'll volunteer. I'll, I'll come in. And, and David just gave me a bunch of kind of riffraff that he didn't want to deal with for the summer. You know, you know what it's like. <laughs> um, so he's like, just, just take these kids. And uh, he's, he's like, I said, well, what do I do with them? I've never coached before. He's like, just do what you would want to do. You know, do train the way you want to train. So he basically gave me free reign um, on about 10 kids. And, and we just had, we just had fun all summer and, and I enjoyed coaching him because David gave me kind of the reins and um, that was super cool of him. And, um, and it was very confronting because I had to figure out well, what type of coach do I want to be? How do I want to coach these athletes? So I really had to think and um, it wasn't being handed to me in that sense. And, and, um, and they all swam fast. They all swam best times at the end of the season uh, the summer and David was like, Hey, you're, you, you know, you're pretty good at this. Do you want to, do you want to stay on as a full-time assistant? And I was like, ah, yeah, okay. But, um, but he's like, you got to finish your degree. So I went from, I had about two years of my degree full-time and now they said it was going to take me four years part-time. And I'm thinking to myself, it's 2006 now. I'm not going to finish this degree till 2010. Like, Oh my God, you're kidding me. Right. So I'm actually a full-time assistant at Auburn. And I'm going to school with my athletes. So I'd coach them in the morning and then I'd go to English class with them, you know, at nine o'clock. <laughs> like it was embarrassing, a little humiliating, but humbling. It's humbling. It's got to be humbling. I mean, yeah. you're, you're, you're struggling right along with them. You'd be like, yeah. man, Mrs. Smith, she doesn't know what she's talking about in this class. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I understand. <laughs> I couldn't skip school. I know that. No, you know, for sure. <laughs> I, had to, I had to sit up the front. I had to take notes. I had to ask questions. Yeah. I had to do everything right. Um, so it was, it was kind of cool. So it, it actually showed me that I did, really didn't take school seriously enough back when I was in it. You know, I, I could have made it so much easier on myself. It was very right. difficult for me. I wasn't naturally good at school, but I didn't help myself either, you know? And so when I came back as a more mature man and person, um, school was actually quite easy. You know, I went from getting C's and D's and struggling to A's and B's and, and doing it quite, quite easily. It wasn't super easy. I still um, struggled, but um, just by having a system made it a whole lot easier. Well, I mean, and you had your athletes with you. I mean, you can't you can't look yeah. bad in front of them. I mean, no. sitting in front of the class, taking notes, asking questions. That's that's obviously gonna only gonna help. So it's a good yeah. it's a good example. It's a good you know for any NCAA athletes watching, sit in the front of class, introduce yourself, ask those questions. That, that it was and now, here's the here's the really crazy part. So in 2009, I actually um, became the head coach. So I didn't finish my degree. If you do the math, 2009 head coach, I didn't finish till 2010. I was actually the head coach of Auburn swimming and diving men and women for a whole year while I was going to school at the same time doing my undergraduate degree. Now that was humiliating, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that, and that was challenging. Um, that was the most challenging year of my life because not only uh, did that happen, but at the same time, um, you know, my, my wife at the time and I, we had uh, twins as well. So I already had two kids. So we had, we had twin girls in 2008. So, so I had brand new twins. I was the head coach of um, the, the men's and women's program and I was doing my undergraduate degree. That was officially the worst year of my life. <laughs> can't even, I can't even imagine four kids going to school, full-time coach. I mean, that's, I mean, that's nuts. That's absolutely yeah, it was crazy. Nuts. It was crazy, but, <laughs> but it was a fun year. You know, uh, 2009, we, we won the, we won the NCAA title for the men. Um, that was the year that Caesar broke the world record in the hundred freestyle, 50 freestyle, which still, still stand to this day. So in terms of swimming, there was some incredible things going on and uh, we had, we had a lot of success. So it was, it was a wild kind of 12 months. I'm um, sure. So so what, what were those practices like? So you're talking about you know, the fastest performances ever in the history of our sport. And you got, I mean, you guys got, you guys like Fred Bousquet, you got Caesar, you got you know, a handful of guys, you know, my apologies, not naming everybody, but you know, those practices are going head to head every single day. Like 
what's the atmosphere like and what is that environment like? Yeah, we actually had a bunch of really good swimmers. So Fred and Caesar were, you know, obviously great, but there were there were many great athletes. Um, Tyler McGill was swimming at that point in time and, and swimming incredibly fast. Matt Target was there. I think we had George Bavell uh, um, swimming with us as well. So there was many more. It was just a huge group. And um, so all of them were just incredible in their own right. They would come in and be very diligent, but they were all super competitive. So it was, it was challenging in the, in the sense that everybody wanted your attention. Everybody wanted your personal touch. Everybody wanted to be the person that was like, you know, I'm the man. Um, so it was, it was tough, uh, but it was exciting. I'm not going to say that I, w- I wouldn't trade it for the world. I learned so much. But it was also very draining because when you've got these high-level athletes and they're all competing in very similar events or, or if not the same event, they're competing against each other. Um, it can feel to them like you favorite somebody, you know, like oh, you, you favorite that person, you favorite that person. And while as a coach, you know this, it's like hard to balance all those different emotions and all those different, um, you, know, you know, people in terms of giving them, making them feel special, you know. So that was, that was challenging. Um, but in terms of the quality of the work, that wasn't really hard. You know, you'd put something out there and they'd all want to do it better than the person next to them. So the quality of the work was just rising and rising and rising. Every time we did something, you know, somebody would pop something and be like, Oh wow, I want to do that. Um, but, but it's interesting. You see, you see guys that, um, you know, like Caesar, for example, right. One of the things that I really noticed about him and this kind of championship mindset that I'm really interested in is that Caesar would do everything that everybody else would do, but just when he wanted to, or just at the right times, or just if he needed to, he would do something that nobody else in the pool could do. And he would just, he would just put it out there and everybody else would be like, Oh, wow. But it was just, it was often, it was often enough that it was consistent. You know, it wasn't like once a week or once every two weeks. It was once a day or once every other day. He would do something and he would just remind everybody that he was the man in that sense. Like, wow. And that's what I really learned from champions is they, they find an extra gear. They find the extra when they need it. Um, and Caesar did that better than anybody that I'd, I'd ever coached at that point in time. He could just pop something out there you know, we would do a whole set and it would just look the same as everybody else. And then the last rep, you'd do something, you're like, oh, that's why you're special, you know? So um, I learned a lot during that period of time in terms of high level performance, for sure. Oh, I mean, so you got a lot going on at this time. You know, you got, you just mentioned you had twin baby girls, you're finishing your degree, some of the fastest swimming in the history of mankind. Like, what are some of your favorite moments from kind of that time frame, other than changing the diapers at 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah, you know what that's like. Um, <laughs> to me, it was just, it was wild. It was, it was nice to see how far I could push myself, honestly. You know, I was going at 100 miles an hour. Now, it's not sustainable for, the, for your whole life. You know, I couldn't go at that rate. And, um, but it was, it was nice to be in a small town and those things happening you know, so that I didn't have many other distractions. It was work, it was swimming, it was family. So um, I could kind of be where I needed to be at each particular point. It wasn't being, I wasn't being distracted by a lot, but I was, I was, I was putting a lot out there from the moment I'd wake up in the morning to the moment I'd go to sleep. It was, uh, it was, everything was full. I mean, if I wasn't writing a paper, or like you said, changing a diaper or writing a workout or, um, or, you know, having a meeting, something was going on for those 12 to 14 hours that I was awake, you know, it was very, very intense. But I, but I learned so much by pushing myself to the, to the limit, you know, as an athlete, you do that. But as a coach, I certainly did that as well, where it's just pushing my limits and learning how much, what was in my capacity, how, how much could I do? And I'm kind of doing that now I'm doing, I'm, I'm working full time, and I'm also got a very successful podcast um, and I've just started coaching a couple of athletes again. So I'm, I'm putting a lot back into my life and challenging myself, but I know that I have the capacity to be able to handle it. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you've years of experience of, of juggling, you know, basically bowling pins on fire for a long period of time. Mm. You know, sometimes you need to take that step back and, and reset and then reevaluate. And, you know, I think it's great. You're slow, you know, kind of getting yourself back into it. I mean, it's yeah. not, uh, the sport isn't the same without you on the pool deck. So I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you're working with a couple of people. I appreciate um, it. You can you kind of mentioned the like the, the the champion mindset a little bit, and I'm I'm curious in in your opinion, what what truly or from what you've seen, what separates you know the good athletes from the truly great athletes. So you can have you know, a handful of, of good athletes that are going to achieve some truly special things that they're going to remember forever. But when it comes down to it, you know, what do you feel like are are the, the separating factors to to help people get to that truly elite level? That's what I'm on a quest to discover. I'm really trying to dig into that more and more. Um, I've seen it a lot. I don't know if I have the exact answer for everybody to say, hey, if you just do that, that's the answer. But here's what I can tell you. I'm trying to discover whether it's something that's born into them, they're just born with it, or it's something that can be developed, or it's a combination of the the two in some way that you you do have it, but you've just got to find a way to bring it out in you. So that's part of my discovery. And I'm sure you're, you're trying to figure that out too. It's like, you, yeah, you want champions and you want people that believe in themselves. And it's simple to say, well, if you just do this, then this will be the outcome. But it's not always the way. I find that some of the best athletes I've had are some of the most insecure athletes that, that, uh, that I know. You know, they're very insecure. And, um, but that also can make them great as well because their insecurities fuel them right? They're insecure. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to lose, or I, I want to have a certain self-image, or I want this uh, result to give me the gratification that I need, you know, whatever it is that that that's what they're desiring. And then I've also met athletes that just have this internal belief from the get-go that, that they can overcome anything and they're, and they're the best, you know? Um, I had a, an incredible, talk with Kyle Chalmers the other day who is the Olympic champion he won he won the Olympics at 18 I mean 18 in the 100 freestyle in this day and age it's just out of this world unheard of yeah so it's like it's like who are you are you just a freak of nature or like what's your belief system and his belief system is is this like yes there are the Caleb Dressels of the world and there are the Nathan Adrians and you know there are the Alex Popovs they're going to be there but his belief is if you put me in a situation where I have a chance to win, then I'm going to believe I can win. You know, I'm going to back myself. I'm going to put myself in a situation where I feel like I can win. And that's just, that's just what he believes. Whether you, whether you agree with it or not, that's what he believes. And if you believe something, it doesn't matter what everybody else believes, right? And, and sometimes we get caught up in what everybody else believes, you know? One of my faults of my, myself was that, you know, you would hear things about certain people, uh, other people would have beliefs about, about a certain swimmer, and then you'd start to believe that because everybody else around you believes that. Instead of saying, I, I don't really care what everybody else believes, I even delusionally, I believe this, you know? Um, some people might say it's a delusion of, Brett, you, you're not you're not good enough to be the Olympic champion, but you have to have a little bit of delusion to, to, because if you stand up on the block and you don't believe it, I can guarantee you it's not going to happen. There's not an Olympic champion that I've talked to who said to me on a, on the podcast, you talk, I, I work out with Lenny Krasselberg every day. Lenny Krasselberg's a prime example. Um, any Olympic champion, you take anybody, none of them have said to me, Brett, I didn't believe I could win. None of them. They all believe they could win. And yet I've also talked to athletes that never become Olympic champions. Become, they, they get very close, but I don't hear it in their voice or I don't see it in their body language or I don't hear it in their words. You know, I don't hear the fact that they truly believe in themselves. And that may be because people around them don't believe in them. So they don't believe in themselves. I don't know what it is exactly. There's no exact formula, but I know that those athletes do not 100% believe that they're good enough to be Olympic champion. And the ones that do win absolutely do believe that. I, I, I tend to agree with that. I think there's, there's a lot of truth in there that's, I mean, we as coaches, we can believe in our athletes, you know, to the nth degree, but it does no good if, if they're not 
believing in themselves. Mm. And you can only, you know, have the conversation with somebody so many times before it turns into, you know, unless you make that breakthrough, but it turns into like, you're pressuring them to make that belief. You know, if they're not ready to do it, they're not ready to do it. And they're not going to, they're not going to make that jump. And, you know, it, it, everybody's going to be a little bit different. And you know, I think that's, that's, and that's, that's, that's spot on. That's awesome. Um, well, the other now, thing I want to add to that is just like, we all have insecurities, like oh, all of sure. us, like yeah. I, I'm sure Caleb Dressel has insecurities. I'm sure he, he, he could look at himself and find ways to pick himself apart. You know, he's not six foot six. That could be one, one thing that he says, I'm just, I could never get to where I want to be because I'm not six foot six. But he doesn't limit himself with that belief. He, he sees himself as six foot two or however tall he is, not much taller than that. And he says, I'm capable of anything, you know, um, I'm capable of winning. And, and that's what champions do is they, yeah, they, they have insecurities and they even see maybe, maybe they see limitations, but they don't hold those limitations against themselves to say, I'm not capable of something because of these limitations. They see possibility. They mm-hmm. see, they see um, not even hope. They, they, they just see belief. They just see, I can do this. It's possible. And I know these other factors are here, but I'm not going to believe in these factors. I'm, I'm going to believe in the fact that I'm capable of doing whatever I set my mind to do, even though I have these insecurities, right? Yeah. Well, and, and so when, like, when you have an athlete who maybe is a little more insecure, maybe it's around taper time, you know, they're starting to struggle a little bit or the nerves are getting to them, you know, they're getting close to the, to that championship, uh, you know, performance, you know, what, what sort of advice or what kind of conversations would you, would you have with somebody to, to kind of help them out? Well, we start to, we start to th- see things and hear things that aren't really there. You know, they're not really there. Like, so what I try and do is come back to reality uh, with, with an athlete and, and an athlete might just say, Hey, I don't, I don't feel my stroke today. Uh, I feel, I feel terrible today. Okay. Well, then let's accept that. That's how you feel today. But the reality of the situation is you're not going to feel that tomorrow. Like today doesn't define what tomorrow is. Today defines what today is. So stay in today. And that's what I try and get any athlete to do is stay in the moment. If you don't feel good in the moment, either find a way to change the way you feel or just accept the way you feel. But don't look at it and say, I feel terrible on Thursday and I race on Monday, so I'm, not, I'm going to swim terrible on Monday. Today's Thursday. It's got nothing to do with Monday, you know? So that's, what it, that's all I, um, and I... And I tried to do that with myself over time. You know, as I became a more experienced athlete, you start to realize that, look, and um, who did I talk to the other day? Um, I talked to uh, Greg... Uh, Paltrinari, all right, Um, Olympic 1500-meter champion. And that's what he says. Like, Brett, I want to win every race, but I'm not going to win every race. But what I do do is when I do lose, I give myself a chance to, you know, deal with that and accept it. But then I leave it, you know. If I lose on Friday, I believe I can come back Saturday and win again. Like, that's just my belief system. But I understand that I lost on Friday, but that doesn't define, that doesn't mean I'm going to be unsuccessful on Saturday. And so he finds a way to just deal with it, accept it and move on from it. And, uh, and that's what champions do the best. Um, the ones that I find never quite get to where they want to go is they just getting, they're getting held up, they're getting stuck and then they're projecting and they're staying in that projection, you know? Yeah. I think, I mean, that's very true. I mean, usually you get to a meet, you might have that, you know, that maybe that first swim doesn't go as you expected it would go. And then all of a sudden, you know, the hands go up and you're just like, all right, that's, that's just the way the next five days are going to be, you know, then, but you know, as an athlete, you can almost kind of have to have short-term memory loss. Like it's, that one's over. Like that's, that's moved on. You're not, you're not perfect every single repeat in practice. You're not perfect every practice. And mm. so you got to give yourself a chance to, to bounce back and, and be ready to go, especially at the NCAA level, because your teammates need you. You know, yeah. you, can't just, you can't throw in the towel. You might yeah. be counted on for a relay. Yeah. Kathleen Baker talked about that. I thought she, she put it really well. Like at the Olympic trials, she went a minute point eight in her first swim and qualified eighth for the 100 back final. 
Um, and then the next swim, she went, she went from like a minute point eight to 59.3, you know, like drastic improvement. You know, we're talking like two body lengths. And all she said, it was just like, she was just, she was so wound up and she was so excited and she was putting so much pressure on herself and she was just doing things she just wouldn't normally do. She was reacting in a way that wasn't conducive to fast swimming. So she just took a deep breath, obviously with the help of a coach and, um, and just figured out a way to get back to doing what she does best and, and finding a way to get the best out of herself. And so that one swim had no reflection on what the next one was going to be. And then she ends up finishing second at the trials and then ends up winning the silver medal at the Olympics, you know, all yeah. from, it all started from a swim that was a minute point eight and, and just got awful. You know, right. could have that could have been the end of her, story right there that that could have been the start of her story to say that was it you know but she didn't she didn't believe it she she yeah. knew that she could figure it out no yeah. uh oh that's great i mean i i didn't get to, she was she was in town they're doing like a speedo photo shoot uh a little while back and uh i didn't get a whole lot of chance to to talk to her but you know listening to some of the things that she said like in various interviews and in podcasts and everything that's i mean that's 100 percent accurate and uh you got to give yourself that chance to rebound. I think that's, that's really important. Um, so you're on number 75 right now mm-hmm. over the previous 74, you've had a lot of conversations, a lot of different inputs, a lot of different views. What are some commonalities that you're kind of noticing? And, and what do you think are, are some, some, some general like talking points that, that you're noticing from, from everybody that you're, you're speaking with? Well, I'm lucky now that I'm talking to a lot of, really high level athletes you know like olympic champions or oh, olympic olympic you're too kind. You're too kind. <laughs> some of the best coaches in the country you know so i'm i'm very lucky you know so it's it's um yeah i mean the 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 common theme is that they all started in the same spot we we all did you know we all started with with some sort of swim lesson you know it was just like hey we're thrown into a pool and um and that's where it all starts for all of us. You know, we're just thrown in and, and as you go, you just climb the ranks and you have um, successes and failures along the way, all of us. And, and then eventually something starts to click, you know? Um, but, but the thing is that none of us gave up. You, you didn't give up as a swimmer. You didn't give up as a coach and they don't, they don't give up as, as where they are right now. And they just continued to find ways to get better. And that's what they did. But they, they also put themselves in situations where they're, um, they're surrounded by excellence in a way, you know, they don't have to come from all, they don't all come from big groups, but they're, they're either in a, in a situation where their coach holds them accountable to excellence or their teammates or their family, but, or just themselves, but they're committed to high level excellence. You know, they're committed to doing things right. They're committed to um, hurting themselves in the pool, pushing their, pushing their body, um, doing the things necessary in order to be a champion. Um, a lot of us just do the things necessary in order to be a, a swimmer. You know, like part of being a swimmer is turning up to practice. We all do that, right? What they do differently is they hold themselves accountable to a standard that may be even above the group standard. They, they say, no, that's not good enough. Like, I want more than that. I want to be better. I want to be the best. And they keep pushing and pushing and grinding. And sometimes that means staying in a group for many years. And other times it means changing, you know, what, what you've got. But what they always do is they always hold themselves accountable. And, and, I, and I found that too, is like just hearing their conversations is that, the first person they look at when things don't go right is themselves. You know, like what, what could I have done better? How could I have done better? Or they have a, they have a trusted advisor as, as a coach or a, or a parent or whoever it is in their life where they, they go to that person and say, what could I have done better here? And they trust that person that they're giving them information that is going to be valuable to them. Um, that's the biggest thing, man, is this that um, I don't think any of them see themselves as particularly any more gifted necessarily. You know, I think, I think we talk about talent a lot and we say, oh, that person's talented. They don't necessarily see themselves as talented. They see the hardships that they went through and they see the sacrifices and they see 
the areas where they push themselves and challenge themselves and hold themselves accountable beyond what the people around them might be holding themselves accountable. So that's what they see about themselves. We see talent. They see hard work. Oh, that's awesome. I think that's, I mean, yeah, listening to, to a bunch of these over the, over the days and, you know, I completely agree with you. I think we all start in the same spot, wherever it is. And nobody's, you know, five years old, 10 years old, starting swimming lessons, joining a team. You're not winning the Olympics at seven years old. No. Right. Like everybody, everybody's working through, yeah. they're working through things and they're failing, they're falling flat on their faces. They're having highs, they're having lows. And, yeah. and I think, and that's true in life too. I mean, we don't, we're not all, we're not all college graduates knowing exactly what to do 24, seven, 365, you know, as we, we go through our jobs and we go through life I mean, we're constantly learning and, and evolving and adjusting and, you know, leaning on other people to, to help us be better. So I think that's, that's awesome. Um, they're super competitive too. Like they love competition. Yeah. They just yeah. love it. They love it. Yeah. They're, they're competitive with their siblings. They're competitive with their teammates. They're competitive with their competitors. So they're just any aspect of their life. They're just competitive. They want to yeah. be the best and they want to win. And they love that feeling. They, they, they like, they like to win, but they really hate, really to, lose. hate to lose. They yep. really hate to lose. Yeah. yeah. I'm not allowed to play Uno with my seven year old anymore. Uh, my wife gets mad at me because I never let her win. <laughs> exactly. But she's got to learn. I mean, life's hard. Uno's not that hard. Come on, you can figure it out. You keep pushing them, man. I like that. <laughs> uh, so we're kind of we're kind of coming out, sort of, of this COVID shutdown. You know, people are swimming super fast, and they haven't really done a whole lot of maybe in water training or a whole lot of training in general. You know, and your thoughts, you know, like, where does the sport go from here? And, you know, how, in your mind, how do you think that these people are achieving such incredible things? Like, people are setting, you know, records. They're almost, uh, you're talking about, he almost broke the world record the other day in the 1500. I mean, yeah. he swam ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Italy, they got hit pretty hard. You know, I can't, he probably wasn't training, you know, 10 days a week, or not 10 days a week, 10 practices a week, you know, whatever it was. But, you know, so, what, what sort of things can we learn from this? And in, in, in your vision, you know, how do you see it kind of moving forward for everybody? Yeah, Greg, Greg just went the second fastest time in history in the 1500. And, and he had six weeks out of the water, completely out of the water at the start of, you know, COVID, which was kind of like April, you know, and, and we're here now in, in August. So he, had, he hadn't had that huge a block coming off a six week break. And he's probably never had six weeks off in his, in his life. So yeah, but, you know, I was at David Marsh's house the other day and he had a book sitting on the counter. I just kind of opened it. It was kind of like, you know, how to swim fast. Or I don't know that, remember the title, but it was, it was written by Doc Councilman. And I looked at the date of when it was published and it said 1968. And I'm flicking through the pages and it was almost like it was written five years ago. You know, it was like very similar things. And this is in 1968. I'm thinking to myself, we haven't evolved that much. You know, we're still doing the same formula. The formula is 10 workouts a week, you know, six to 7,000 kilometers a workout. Um, you know, so it's kind of like we're all doing the same things that we've been doing for 30, 40, 50 years. You know, it's like, have we not evolved beyond this? And I think that's what I'm getting at here is that COVID in a way has forced us to make huge changes, all of us, you know, we're not getting the pool time. We're not getting the amount of, um, you know, sessions in per week. We're having to switch things up. We're having to adjust. We're, we're, we're paying much closer attention to technique and how we're doing things because of that fact. Um, we're, we're becoming very technical. Um, so I don't know what the answer is. I just know that the, the, definition of insanity is to just keep doing the same thing and expect a different result right that's what they yeah. say so yeah. it's like why do we keep doing things the same way and then all of a sudden covid comes along people are out of the pool for two months and then we get back in and people are breaking records left and right and we don't start to think what's going on why and so when we start to question and that's how we grow and that's how we learn is we question things i think and we we really start to analyze so for me I'm looking at this as like, I don't want to go back to necessarily the way that we were doing it. Um, but I don't, I don't want to, 
I don't want to pretend that you can't swim in order to, you know, you, you, you don't train in order to swim fast. You have to train, right? You have to, there's got to be a new way to do it. There's got to be a better way to do it. And that's what I'm always looking at. I was influenced by some great coaches. One of them, including was, was Richard quick right before he passed away. And Richard was, you know, 65 years old at the time. And he was always questioning and he was always trying to figure out how we could be faster. And he was always believing that we could be faster. He, he would always have this belief. He was like, Brett, in 10 years from now, how fast are people going to be? How, how fast are they going to be swimming 10 years from now? He's like, well, if they're going to be doing that in 10 years, why can't we do that next year? Why do we have to wait 10 years? Why aren't we asking the question of looking back 10 years and saying, well, this is what we were doing then. Why aren't we asking those questions now? And that's how he thought. He always thought 10 years in advance. And so that was a huge influence on me. And that's what I'm trying to do now is like, let's not look back on this COVID situation and say, well, we learned this 10 years ago. Let's learn it now so that we can make these huge strides forward now. And that's why I love the podcast is like we're, we're putting things out there and we're learning from all the people and we're listening and then we can make our own evaluations and conclusions based on what we're hearing. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, I think it's important. It's a lot of the athletes that, that I've seen or I've talked to or, you know, recruited, you know, they're, they're going through and they're like, yeah, we've only been in for, you know, X number of weeks and only swimming, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, but I went six best times. And it's like, well, maybe your body got tired over that period of training and you just kind of needed to hit the reset button. Everyone, you know, sometimes hitting the reset button is a good thing. Maybe it's not, you know, two months out of the water, but you know, maybe in, in our training blocks and we start thinking of how are we going to hit that reset button throughout the season to help them continue to recover so they can continue to perform or perform at a higher level. Yeah. One of the questions I ask myself is this, this concept of base, right? We, we talk about base in swimming. You need a base or he's had a base or, and, and, and it's like, what is base? And so I'm trying to redefine what base is, you know, for me, the, the base, the base of the past three months, I think has been, we're going to get back in. We're just going to swim quality. We're going to do quality, quality, quality. Well, then three months later, we race and we swim the best time. So to me, the base is quality. So why are we looking at quality as our base? Why do we look at volume as our base? Why do we look at how much yardage we do as a base? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I, I, it, it, that, just, that just reminded me of a, a time. I, I, uh, when I was in college, I don't want to flip this thing around, but there was a, there was a moment where I, I took a summer off. I was you know, struggling with some things mentally and uh, I just, I gained a ton of weight. I was just, I was this chubby kid. I'm six, five. And I was like 265 pounds. Like my thighs are rubbing together. Like I'm an out of shape individual. And I walk back on the pool deck and Frank Bush looks me directly in the eye. He's like, we are going to race you into shape. Mm -hmm. Every single Saturday I was doing something fast off the blocks. Mm -hmm. And within maybe two months, I mean, I was back to, you know, better than I was at that point the year before. Yeah. And, you know, his theory, he was like, look, man, we can, we can train you all day long, but we're not training you to be a plow horse. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a thoroughbred. We're here to get you to, to race. And so that's what, literally, that's what we're going to do to you. And yeah. I was like, all right, hey, it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you felt great. Like you felt great doing that. Cause you're like, oh, this is, this is different. And yeah. this is, this is exciting. And, um, and so you buy in as well. So you're like, oh, wow, he's, he's thinking of me differently. And so, or he's treating me differently, or he's, he's, he's even just trying something different on me. And that's exciting to athletes. And I think that's where a lot of athletes have been in this COVID period. Yeah, you don't have something immediate that you can get the gratification from. But if you get up on the block and do a time trial, and, and you've been just swimming fast for the past few months, yeah, you're going to pop something fast and feel good about it. So to me, swimming fast is also about confidence and about self self esteem as well. Like how do you see yourself? Because that that's important. So to me is like when you're getting beaten down and beaten down emotionally and physically all the time, you're not going to stand on the block and be um, a super confident athlete, you know? So I always try and get my athletes to walk off the pool deck feeling successful every day. And, and even if they've had a bad workout, I'll say, all right, let's finish with a 25 fast, you know, and just make them feel good. Just the last memory I want for them walking home is, man, that was, 
I, I, it didn't go exactly the way I wanted, but it ended well. So then they want to come back, you know, like you always want your athletes coming back. Mm-hmm. You don't want them walking off and saying, God, I want to just take three days off here, you know? So for me, I like to get them to walk off the pool deck as often as I can feeling successful. I think that's, that's ultimately that's huge. You know, everybody's, every coach does it a little bit differently yeah. and you know, you got athletes all over the world swimming at a really high level, but you know, as, as you mentioned, the thing that's really separating them is their, their belief and their confidence. You know, they believe in what it is that they're doing yeah. and they have the confidence that they're going to achieve at a high level. And yeah. not everybody trains the way Caleb Dresser trains. Not everybody trains the way you know, Bruno trains. Everybody's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And, but they're all competing at a really high level because of what they believe that they're doing. And I think that's, I think that, that's, that's a great point. Yeah, man. So... I don't, I'm, I'm out of questions at this point. I know we're recording and it's not like we're live or anything. So hopefully we can edit and be like, all right, now what do, where do we go from this? Where do we kind of go from this point? I don't edit, man. We just put it out there. But listen, <laughs> I, I've, uh, I've loved it. It's been awesome just to kind of be reflective and uh, chat with you. Um, like I said, you're one of the best coaches in the NCA. I got a lot of respect for you and what you're doing and uh, appreciate, appreciate you doing this too, man. Thank you. Ah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking me to do it. It's it a true honor. You know, the special 75th anniversary uh, little episode here yep. for, for your birthday and yep. uh, being born in 75. You know, now you got to get somebody even cooler to do number 100, which I'm sure you can. Yeah, I need I need 100. Who's coming up on 100? Um, we'll, we'll figure someone out. <laughs> someone cool. But listen, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, good luck over the next few months. All right. All right. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. See you, Dave.